good to see you this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Lewis, and uh, I am very excited to dig in with you to this um, passage. Just to recap, two weeks ago, uh, we saw that Jesus is himself the new wine that God gives. He's the one whose blood cleanses us from sin like nothing else can. Last week, Ian followed up on that and said that Jesus is the new temple. He's the presence of God finally come to dwell among us. He's the one who brings about life and resurrection for all people. And so we've only read two chapters of John's Gospel, and we have a grand view of who Jesus is. John is front-loading with, here is who Jesus is. I need you to see he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the one who brings life and healing to the nations. But over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that grand vision, and we're just going to ground it into the everyday encounters that Jesus has with a variety of different people. And that's because for John, the, the grand and eternal God is not just an idea. He's not a kind of abstract, philosophical thing. No, John says God became a person who walked among us. That is John's central claim in his gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. In the words of James K. Smith, the incarnation of Jesus is the nexus of history and eternity. The collision of time and eternity in Christ makes history the arena for encountering God. That means that normal people, me and you and a first century rabbi named Nicodemus, we can encounter the eternal God. In the person of Jesus, we can meet the eternal God. And that's just what happens in our passage that Mike read for us. Nicodemus, a first century rabbi, he encounters the eternal God in the flesh, on the ground. But there's a problem that Mike read to us from the end of chapter 2. It says Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. See, Jesus sees a fundamental problem in each person. He looks into the heart of each person and sees there is a problem here. John wrote in his prologue that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not recognize him. Why? What is the problem that Jesus observes? Well, actually, this passage kind of unpacks that little claim that the end of chapter 2 makes. So we're going to listen in as a famous teacher comes to Jesus and picks his brain. And what we'll see is this. We have a fundamental need to be reborn. That's the problem. But that second, Jesus himself is the means by which we can be reborn. First, we have a need to be reborn. Have a wee look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Chapter 3. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. John tells us Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling Council. In other words, this is a very intelligent, very religious man. Nicodemus obeys all the commands of God. He knows the Old Testament by memory, inside out. He loves God. 
And he's the one who teaches God's people what is true and false, what is right and wrong. So it's just important that we see that he doesn't come to Jesus thinking, I want to submit to you. He comes to Jesus thinking, who is this upstart preacher? Who is this guy that's making all the headlines? See, the Jewish rulers would be wondering, what is this Jesus guy actually all about? What is his agenda? But it's interesting that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Seems like he's embarrassed to be seen uh, having a conversation with Jesus. There's something more going on. He's not just been sent by the Jewish authorities. He seems intrigued. He seems interested, maybe drawn by his teaching and miracles. Maybe he heard about the wedding at Cana and thought, who is this guy? And he comes at night because maybe his respectable religious friends will chastise him. What What are you doing? You're the rabbi of rabbis. Why would you be seeking any help from this guy? Something in him is curious, though, when he comes by the cover of night. And just as we begin, I wonder whether that is you today. I wonder whether you have heard about this guy's teachings. You've heard about his miracles. And you're wondering, who is this man? Who is this Jesus that I keep hearing about? Nicodemus comes by night. But in John's Gospel, we want to always read something more profound into these kind of little mundane details. Nicodemus doesn't just come by night because he's embarrassed. When John talks about night, he's always talking about a kind of spiritual darkness as well. Don Carson, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. See, just as we saw at the end of chapter 2, what is in man? What is in the heart of every person is darker than we know. Nicodemus comes thinking he's in a position of authority over Jesus. But John wants us to know right at the beginning, the interior of Nicodemus' heart is pitch black. He's shrouded in sin. Even this man. And you wonder, is that why John gives us this man first? Even this man. Even the most religious of religious people. Even the person who knows the Bible better than anyone in this room. Even the one who has obeyed every command of God. Even him. Even he is shrouded in the darkness of sin. Jesus knew what was in man. And he comes presuming to know a thing or two about Jesus. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He sounds complimentary. He is intrigued by Jesus. He's, he's interested in what he has to say, but he has missed something fundamental. He says, we know you're a teacher because you couldn't do the things you're doing unless God was with you. Nicodemus comes saying, yeah, we know that God is with you, but he's missed something. John chapter 1 again, the word is God. Nicodemus gets it half right. The word was with God. He misses that the word is God in the flesh. Nicodemus is fascinated, but wrong. He's intrigued, but he's too embarrassed to really get under the surface and investigate. We know that you're a great teacher because you could not do the things you're doing unless God was with you. So Jesus takes this line and runs with it. When Nicodemus says in verse 2 that Jesus could not do miracles without being with God, John records him using one specific Greek word. It's dunatai. That means he is able or I am able. 
And in this case, he's saying, hey, someone would not be dunatai to perform miracles unless God was with him. He's right. But Jesus takes his kind of category error where he thinks, well, the only thing you could be is a prophet from God. And he turns it upside down. Verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Literally, and this doesn't come through in English because it's hard to translate, literally, no one is dunatai to see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's as though Jesus says, you want to talk to me about being able. You want to talk to me about the power I would need to do miracles. Let me tell you something. You are not able even to see the kingdom of God because your interior is so black and sinful. You can't even see who I am without a complete transformation of your being. Talk to me about I am able. See, Jesus, who knows the heart of every man, he peers into the heart of Nicodemus, and he just calls it out. You are not able. In fact, he says, none of us are able. We're blinded to the truth of who God is. Ever since the sin of our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, something fundamental has been altered in the depths of our beings. See, Christians have traditionally called this original sin. All that means is that who we are now is fundamentally not able to see who God is. We're fundamentally not able to obey and love God. Something has broken in us. To use Nicodemus' language, we are not dunatai without something completely changing in our hearts and minds. For years, my mum and I, on Christmas Eve, would watch The Polar Express, my favourite Christmas film. I absolutely love it. And if you've seen it, you'll know the scene near the end. The main character, whose name escapes me, gets the train. He doesn't believe in Santa anymore. And there's elves everywhere. There's children everywhere. And a big cry, a big cheer goes up because Santa has come out. And he's looking at the spot that everyone else seems to be looking at. And he can't see Santa. Can't see him. A bell even kind of falls off the sleigh and lands at his feet and he picks it up and he shakes it and it's silent. He can't hear. The girl standing next to him can hear. He can't hear because the problem was not with the bell. The problem was with him. He doesn't believe. It's not until later in the film that he chooses to believe that he can hear and see Santa. Something in him has to fundamentally change before he can see what is true. And in a similar way, Jesus says, the only way that you can see or hear what is true about me is through an inner change that God himself works in us. Church father, St. Augustine said, grace does not find men fit for salvation. It makes them so. See what he's saying? God doesn't find you able to see and hear who he is. He finds you blind. He finds you completely unable to do good. And he makes you able to see what is true. Nicodemus, for his part, he just cannot understand what Jesus is talking about. Have a look at verse 4 onwards again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. 
Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, we don't know if Nicodemus is being facetious or if he's genuinely baffled. Either way, what he says shows us just how lost he is. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb to be born again? He's probably making fun of Jesus. Think of it this way. Here's this upstart preacher in his early 30s. And he's coming saying, yeah, you can change. You can have a new beginning. And here's, here's Nicodemus, maybe in his 60s, saying, look, I've been around the block. People don't change. People don't change. A man can't crawl back into the womb to be reborn. We are who we are. He might as well have said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, Jesus. You can't take a sinner and make them righteous. That's not how this life works. Nicodemus is thinking about a fresh start and wondering how could Jesus actually believe that broken people can be healed? How can he actually believe that sinners can be redeemed? Surely our law is decided. Surely the things we have done, the people that have hurt us, the pain we have experienced, surely all of that has the deciding factor. Surely the die is cast. I am who I am. How could Jesus be so naive to think that people can really change? Nicodemus can't see. Of course he can't. He doesn't see that Jesus is the God of eternity. Standing in time, saying, I, I am able to change people. Nicodemus can't understand because he can't see who Jesus is. James Smith puts it this way, and it's worth just quoting him at length on this passage. He says, Jesus is inviting him <clears throat> to consider the unthinkable, that this I, this historical creation can be born again, can begin again. And not because God erases history, that would mean erasing me, the miracle that puzzled Nicodemus that should astound us is that the God of grace can redeem even me. It's the body with scars that is resurrected. It's the me with a history that is redeemed, forgiven, graced, liberated. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The grace of God is not just a helping hand. The grace of God is a complete 180 on all you have been and seen and done. Whoever you are, Wherever you've been, whatever you've seen, you can be born again. The God of grace can redeem even you. Not because you can see who he is and you think, oh, I've weighed up the evidence and I've decided to go for this. No, because he will take you as you are and drag you into life. The poet Renéer Maria Rilke once wrote that we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. That's what Jesus does to us. We cannot grasp him. 
but in his grace, he might just come and grasp you. But you must be born again. So Jesus says, you can't be like Nicodemus, who couldn't get his head out of his own categories of thinking and viewing the world. You've got to be willing to allow God to transform you completely. In the Narnia books, there's a character called Eustace Scrub, and in one of the stories, he kind of finds himself in a dragon's lair, and the dragon's nowhere to be seen, and he finds himself desiring the dragon's treasure, and he sits on the treasure, and enough time passes. C.S. Lewis writes in the book that he thought so many dragonish thoughts that he became a dragon, and he comes out, and his skin has turned into scales. Something has corrupted in him. And he starts trying to scratch his scales off. And he gets underneath them and he gets under and there's his real human skin again, but the dragon scales just keep on growing back. And eventually Aslan, the great lion, finds him hopeless and unable to change. He says, you must let me undress you. Aslan takes his claws and rips the scales off of him. And Eustace Scrub describes it to a friend in the book. He says, the very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. Here's the reality of what Jesus is talking about. The very first tear that God makes, and maybe the next tear and the next one and the next one will feel like it has plunged right into your heart because it will have. Because God is not in the business of just giving you a little add-on. He's not in the business of saying, okay, I'm just going to kind of give you a lick of paint. He wants to tear the house down. He wants to rebuild it from scratch. And so if you come to Jesus, you are going to find some pain in your heart because God is not content to leave you as you are. He wants to get his claws under your dragon scales and rip them off. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says the spirit blows where he wills. He means you can never enter God's kingdom. You can never find life by just kind of grasping around with your mind. You can never figure it out. You can never work hard enough. You need to be born again by the power of God's spirit. That means evidence isn't the issue. If you're not a Christian, can I just talk to you? Evidence is not your issue. Here's a story of Jesus. There's your evidence. Jesus in the flesh talking to Nicodemus and he cannot see. Evidence is not the issue. The issue is our darkened hearts. The solution is not more evidence. The solution isn't, well, let me just answer every question I have about Christianity and then I'll make a decision. No, the solution is to have your eyes opened. Our issue is our stubborn hearts look evidence in the face and still refuse to believe. If you're Christian, that means that you can't engage with God by just trying to wrestle him into categories that you've already got in your mind. Spirit blows where he wills. That's what Jesus says. You cannot say, well, Monday I'm doing this and Tuesday I'm doing this and here's my 10-year plan, but on a Sunday I'll go to church unless, you know, unless I get a better offer. Spirit blows where he wills. You cannot take God and form him into your own image. There are two options. You either let God get his claws under your skin 
You either allow yourself to be born again and transformed, or you don't. Those are two options. Jesus doesn't say, well, look, if you're not quite ready to be born again, why don't we just kind of, I don't know, half, half, birth, half birth you again. You're in or you're out. You allow Jesus to set the agenda for your life, or you don't. Look at verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Dialogue at this point becomes monologue in our story. Nicodemus can't understand. He's not been born again. God hasn't yet opened his eyes. And Jesus is amazed. He says, you're literally the teacher of God's people. And you don't understand what I'm saying to you. Verse 12, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe How could you believe if I speak of heavenly things? It's like Jesus is saying, look, this is faith 101. Like, this is the first thing you need to know. And if you can't grasp that you need to be born again, you can't go any further with me. The ground floor reality of the Christian faith is you must be born again. Nicodemus slinks into the background of our story. He can't handle what Jesus says. And we won't meet him again for some time. And yet Nicodemus' question does ring in our ears. Right? How can this be? How can this be? I, Nicodemus makes a good point. How can I change? How can you teach an old dog new tricks? How can someone like me actually be able to see and enter the kingdom of God? By what means can God bring about a new birth? Well, Jesus doesn't allow Nicodemus to leave without giving him an answer. Have a look at verse 14 with me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus in a way that he would understand. He knew the Old Testament inside out, and Jesus is making an allusion to Numbers 21. In that story, God's people are wandering in the wilderness. They're between a life of slavery in Egypt and freedom in the promised land. And as they wander, they just start to accuse God of abandoning them. They grumble and they sin. And in their sin, God punishes them. He sends venomous snakes. And eventually the people repent. They come to Moses, they ask, Moses, would you intercede for us with God? Would you, take, would you get him to take the snakes away? And I turn to Numbers 21 with me now, and we'll, we'll read what happens from verse 7 onwards. Numbers 21, verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This just seems like a bizarre story for Jesus to use as the example of how can this be? How can I be born again? Well, do you remember that weird incident with the snakes and the bronze pole? Yeah, that, that's how. It's bizarre, but notice a few things. First is that their issue is the exact same issue 
as ours. Nicodemus said himself, we are not able. And the people in this story were not able to appease God's anger. They were not able to stop death coming. We mentioned earlier that it was the sin of our ancestors in the garden that corrupted our nature and in a kind of visceral allusion to the Garden of Eden. God sends snakes. He sends serpents to punish his people for repeating the sin of Adam and Eve. See, their hearts were the same as ours. They too were unable, plagued by the serpent's lies, led astray from God's goodness. And God responds to this problem in a bizarre way. He asks Moses to lift up a bronze image of a snake on a pole so that whoever looks at it won't die. See, they will be saved from the snakes by looking directly at something that has taken on the image of a snake. And we might expect Jesus to take this story and put himself in the place of Moses, right? I am the one who will pray to God for you so that you won't die. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't put himself in the place of God. I am the one who will save you from death. No, he puts himself bizarrely in the place of the serpent. The eternal word of God, the one who is from eternity, who made all things, who is himself without sin. He allows himself to be conformed to the image of the serpent. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The problem is sin, but I will be conformed to the image of sin so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Look at the serpent, God says. Jesus takes on the full brunt of the curse of humanity. He fashions himself into the image of the curse. Philippians says Jesus took on the image of sinful flesh. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that Jesus himself sinned. It means that he took the full weight of all we deserve for our sin. He bore the curse. In Genesis 3, God says thorns and thistles will grow from the ground, and Jesus wears a crown of thorns. It was the serpent that led us into sin, and Jesus says, I will be held up like the serpent so that you can look like me, so that you can go free from the curse. The only way to receive new life is to look at the cross of Christ. Don't don't look to the left or the right. Look to the cross of Christ. Everyone who looks at him will be healed from the venom of sin. At the cross, the Son of Man is truly lifted up. Jesus is playing with words. Yeah, he's lifted up to die, but he's also lifted up in glory. He's lifted up in glory. The song we sang, Crown Him With Many Crowns, says, In eternity, the wounds in his side and hands will still be there. We will glory in the death of Jesus forever. He's lifted up to die, but he's lifted high in glory at the cross. The full goodness of God is on display. The Puritans used to call the cross the burning, fiery center of God's glory. Jesus himself, when he was staring down the barrel of death in John 13, 31, says, now the Son of Man will be glorified. 
Now the Son of Man will be glorified. The only way to be reborn is to look to Jesus. Nicodemus makes it sound ridiculous, but we can't attempt to find a new life by just trying to start again. Okay, I'm just going to crawl back in and try and we'll go again. We'll go again. Okay, we'll start again. Okay, another new year. Okay, we'll go again. I can do it this time. It doesn't work. The only way is for God to give us something brand new. You cannot craft something new from the old. You can't look anywhere else for the new life that Jesus offers other than the Son of Man hung up to die. When we look to him, we find eternal life. Eternal life in John's gospel isn't just about quantity. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're just going to live a really, really, really long time. It's also about quality. Eternal life in John's gospel is about a life with God in the kingdom. Eternal life is to have a union with the Son of God. It is to be born again into the life of the Trinitarian God of love. That is what it means to have eternal life. This is what John meant in his prologue when he wrote that to all who did receive Jesus, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That is what is on offer to us. That is what is on offer when we look to the cross of Christ for healing. A new life, a new kind of life, not just a fresh start, but a completely new kind of life. And that, maybe you're thinking, hey, I've already done that. I've already looked to Jesus, but this means we must continue to look to him. You know, we don't come to the cross for forgiveness and then look for the quality of eternal life elsewhere. Galatians 3, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, how did you first come to God? Of course, it was by grace. But now you think you can continue by just working really hard? No, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. We have to continually return to the cross, to continue to see Jesus, to continue to ask him for more life, for more healing from more at depth of union with him. And how tempted are we to say, well, yeah, I did it. You know, I, I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer and I, yeah, you know, I believe in the death of Jesus, but I think what's going to be really good for me now is to get a good fitness regime going. That's really going to help me to flourish in 2023. No, John's gospel says eternal life, an eternal kind of life today comes through continually coming to behold the Son of Man lifted up. That's it. I don't have a five-step process for you. How do I find life and healing? Look at Jesus. How do I continue to find life and healing? Look to Jesus. What do I do when I feel overwhelmed as a Christian? Look to Jesus. What do I do when I can't beat sin? Look to Jesus. What do I do when it feels like death is clinging to me and life is just too much to bear? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The Son of Man lifted up is the only 
place to find life. Nicodemus is slinked into the background of our story. But um, later in the gospel, he reappears twice. John 7, he voices hesitation at the prospect of arresting Jesus. You think, oh, God's doing something in his heart. But then John 19, Jesus has already been crucified. He's dead and buried. And this time Nicodemus appears, not by the dark of night, but by the light of day. He comes with spices to anoint Jesus' body. And we can only imagine as Nicodemus stood that day, that first Good Friday, and he beheld the Son of Man lifted up to die. That in that moment, he said, oh, I get it. I get it. And he looked at the cross, and he was born again. And he comes and he anoints Jesus' body because he had found healing and life. If you're not a Christian, I have one thing to say to you. Look at Jesus hung up to die and be born again. If you are a Christian, look at Jesus hung up to die and praise God that you're already born again and continue to look at Jesus hung up to die for the rest of eternity. Son of man must be lifted up to die. Nicodemus that day, he got it. He got it. He finally got it. He looked at Jesus and he said, that is the glory of God. That's it. I must be born again. How do I become born again? By God himself dying for me. I get it. Nicodemus finally, finally got it. I wonder whether we have got it like Nicodemus got it. We're going to take communion. And, um, man, here, here's the thing. The death of Jesus is, I'm not kind of just saying, oh, here's what the Puritans said. It is literally the burning center of the glory of God. Like, if you want to know who God is, all you have to do is look to the cross. And so when we take communion, just so sometimes we come and we say, well, this is just what we do, right? Like, I just, in the middle of the song, I'm just going to come and kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm back to the important stuff I'm singing. And what a gift. I get to remember the Son of Man lifted up to die. I get to remember the glory of God that manifested itself, not in power and thunder and lightning and miracles, but primarily in the death of a Jewish carpenter who was himself God. So I want to invite you, if you know and love Jesus, uh, during the kind of first song to come and take communion. And um, 
We do that, we hold it, we do it together. And um, just hold on, don't, don't take it yet. And um, after the first song, um, we're going to take communion altogether. There is nothing we do that is more important than looking at the cross. That's what we, that's what we do. That's, that's who we are. So I want to invite you to do that. If you don't know Jesus, the invitation is open to you this morning. You must be born again. How do I become born again? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We'd ask you, if you don't know Jesus yet, to not come and take communion. Something Jesus has given for his church alone. But we do have a prayer team at the back. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Just see, if God is weighing on your heart, why, why are you waiting? What are you trying to achieve before you admit, I need to be born again, and Jesus is the only way? Our prayer team would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you to invite God to transform your life. If you do feel God pressing on you in that way, I would please just encourage you, don't hesitate. Go to the back. It is as simple as this. You can walk in here dead and you can leave alive. Do so. And do it this morning. We also believe, as Jesus said, the Spirit blows where he wills. And so, hey, we just say that's not enough. It's not enough just me getting up and speaking. We want God to continue to encourage us. We want him to continue to speak and mold what we're doing. And so, if you feel that the Holy Spirit has given you maybe a, a prophetic word or an encouragement or a Bible verse to share with us, or he's leading you just to come and pray over us, um, I would invite you to come and uh, speak to Ian. And he'll kind of evaluate with you whether it's the right time uh, to share that. Um, but would you stand with me? And I'm going to invite the band to come back up.